All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, morning in a very thick accent, Minnesotan, Midwestern. <laughs> My name is Paul Stiver. I am uh, one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town, and I am privileged to get to take us through week 15 of Romans. We're already in week 15, which feels wild. I wanted to talk about something quick. Uh, this is boba tea, kind of boba shake uh, right here. And I have the DQ logo. For a, a while in my 20s, I was a big brother with big brothers, big sisters. And they did all kinds of awesome events. They'd let you uh, take your little to. And one of the things we got to do was go to a Dairy Queen, like Dairy Queen corporate in Golden Valley. And uh, we got to uh, product test a lot of their products. So fun fact, a lot of um, places like a Dairy Queen, a Taco Bell, et cetera, are developing new products like two years in advance. And so we get to try these weird chicken tenders that never came out. And one of the things we got to try was, the, was boba tea. I'd never heard of it. You guys know this milk tea stuff with the little boba balls in it. I think that's what they're called. Um, anyway, uh, we got to try these. Dairy Queen was like, hey, we're, we're in on this. We're thinking about uh, launching this as a product. And I, I watch the Dairy Queen product blogs like all of you do as well. You get their weekly newsletter, right? We're up. Today, they never really launched these the way that we had experienced them in the product testing, and they never launched them. And then right after that, boba tea became a massive industry. There's one right in our neighborhood. They're, they're all over the place. It's, I looked it up. It's a $2.7 billion global industry, and Dairy Queen punted it. They, had the miss, they missed the opportunity because they could have, they had the access, they had the inroad, they had the opportunity to lead the way on, boba, on milk tea here, and they missed it. So it got me thinking about other times that people had an opportunity uh, and they missed that opportunity. And so the next one that came to mind was Blockbuster. Uh, they, they, Blockbuster, uh, any former Blockbuster employees? Sorry, uh, sorry about that, if we had any. Uh, <laughs> no, we had it. Uh, no, just kidding. All right, um, they had the chance, though, to buy Netflix. And they were like, nah, <laughs> they passed. Uh, and how did that shake out? Not well. I, don't, I think there's one remaining blockbuster in the entire world. Um, Decca Records, uh, Decca Records in England had a chance. They actually, the Beatles, this is called the Decca Tapes. The Beatles, I don't know if you guys have heard of this band, little small band from Liverpool. Uh, they, uh, <laughs> uh, a movie reference that only I got, so I shouldn't have done it. Uh, they auditioned at Decca, and the Decca record executives were like, nah. We're good. Uh, there's a lot of bands like you. And so EMI, they went to EMI. EMI cashed in. Um, so small. Uh, in the movie E.T., uh, the original script had E.T. being lured by M&Ms. Um, and M&M, uh, Mars was like, I don't, we don't know what you're doing with this movie. We don't, we're not giving you our product to use in this movie. So they used, if you can see it, Reese's Pieces instead. Any huge Reese's Pieces fans in here? Oh, there is. All right. Okay. So this, this boosted. So M&M's missed out and Reese's Pieces sales went way up because of this movie and the cultural power that it had. And then lastly, has anyone heard of Excite? Anyone heard of Excite? The, uh, or does anyone have a Motorola smartphone? Smartphone. Okay. There's a reason why. Excite had a chance early on in the dot-com boom to buy Google, originally for a million dollars, and then Google, dro they dropped the price to 750000 and Excite was like, 
we're good. And Motorola, similarly, they had the inroad on smartphones. And instead, they were like, I don't know. I don't think people are going to get too big. There is Motorola smartphones, but certainly they're not uh, what they could be. Um, so that's kind of where we're going today. We're looking at Romans 3, 1 through 8. The, the title is Jesus Overturns Our Self-Justification. And the big uh, thing with that is, is they missed out. All these people missed out on these opportunities because they thought they knew better. They thought they could foresee and they thought they had it figured out. Um, and what we're going to see in our passages is, is Paul's going to kind of answer a little bit, why did Israel miss out on the storyline as, as they were God's chosen people and, and everything that they had access to? Why did they miss that when they had such access, such opportunity? And then similarly for us, why do we miss it? What do, are we missing uh, and what we're going to see is, is Israel is trying to self-justify. They're trying to make themselves right. And actually, this is why we miss it as well. So that's going to be, here's the big idea. The default setting of the human heart, the way we're wired is towards self-justification. In other words, we want to put forward our own right standing before others in God, and we become defensive when that is threatened. When the thing that I take pride in about who I am as a person is threatened, I get defensive. But here's the good news. Seeing Jesus as he is causes us to stop missing the point as he overturns our self-righteousness. And now only the gospel, we're getting to this, offers the security we need to stop blaming others, denying the truth, and defending ourselves as instead of, instead of blaming, denying, defending, we get to rest in the righteousness of Jesus. Um, even for me, thinking about this concept, one of the reasons I was being a big brother, probably the biggest reason was it made me feel like I was a good person. So in that sense, then I was doing Big Brothers not because of the, of the little, but for my own righteousness or my own self-understanding and my own goodness and my own belief in my own goodness. So this is, this is pervasive. So where are we going today? We're going to look at our passage, Romans 3, 1 through 8, in its context. Then we're going to consider self-justification in action. We're going to kind of look at the Bible storyline, and that's going to hold up a little bit of a mirror to us. It's going to kind of be reflective of our hearts even though we're not going to be the ones being talked about. And then lastly, we're going to see how Jesus is going to come in and overturn our self-justification when we see him for who he is. So we're going to get another long recap, but it's, again, to put our passage in context. So where have we been in Romans? The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this news. This is Romans 1, 16 and 17. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this is a shocking concept, but Paul, why Paul's saying, I, I want to share this news as much as possible because rightness, right standing with God, comes through faith, faith in this message. And so that's what's being revealed in the gospel, is that the righteous can, be, can live by faith. We can put our faith in God and be justified. But Right away then in 118, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So all of a sudden, wrath becomes not this future concept in Romans, but it's actually a present tense, God giving us over to sin, as it were. And that's what we see in the rest of Romans 1, concluding with this reality in Romans 132, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, this is talking about kind of the non-Jewish, non-ethnic Jewish people 
the Gentiles is the word the Bible uses for them often, or the ethne or the nations, those who didn't have God's big L law, which we'll talk about. They had, though, Paul says, God's righteous decree, or what we've called his little L law, or the law kind of is on our conscience, right? That we know just generally, and humanity knows generally what is right and what is wrong. For example, no cultures uh, condone and promote murder as something that would be a, a good practice, right? There's a little L law, knowledge of good and evil that every human heart has. And so that's what you're sitting there and you're reading that and you're thinking, man, those Gentiles are in big trouble if you're a Jewish reader. But Paul then goes to Romans 2 and he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So this is the big twist that he gets into and spends Romans 2 unpacking to all the Jewish readers that would have been reading this letter and saying, man, those Gentiles are in big trouble. He says, you're in trouble too. You are in the wrong as well because you have broken the law. In Romans in 12 and 13 in chapter two, it says this, for all who have sinned without the law, that'd be those, the Gentiles that have the little L law, not the big L law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the big L law will be judged by the law. And here's why, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. So it isn't just hearing this law, but it's the doers of the law who will be justified. So there's something about not just hearing the law, but practicing it that is what makes one right. Doers are justified, which implies to the reader, not you, because you're a breaker of the law. To the point that he says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Okay. So God is dishonored by our law breaking. And here comes big shock number two of Romans two, Brian got into last week that it's being Jewish in the sense then is not about an ethnicity and it's not about a religious practice, in this case, circumcision. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Another word for letter, law. His praise, this person's praise is, from, is not from man, but from God. So this is big shock number two, that, that's about an inward work of the spirit, not about hearing the law, not about being under the law. And to the Jewish reader, that's a big shock because God gave them the law. So one of the things we need to do if we're wanting to know, if we're reading Romans correctly, is ask the question, or ask the question that Paul asks. He's gonna use questions all the time to, to make his arguments. And in Romans 2, he's dismantled people hoping in their Jewish ethnicity, their Jewish background, having the, the law, having that inroad and access to God. So we should be asking, and this is the question Paul's asking, what was the advantage then? As he says in Romans 3.1, he says, then what advantage has the Jew? All right, we're reading it correctly, all right? What is the value of circumcision? And you expect him to say, nah. There was none. You need to know God. You need to have the spirit work in your life. But he says much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way, the Apostle Paul not kind of using a, their rhetorical arguments back on them. By no means. 
For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying? And then Paul concludes, their condemnation is just. Okay, we're gonna make more sense of this as we go, but verses five and seven are rhetorical arguments or things people are saying back to Paul. His detractors are saying, hey, my unrighteousness is making God look good. How can he do this? We'll come back to that. But we gotta zoom in on this thing first, that to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So when Paul asks the question, what advantage did they have being God's people, having that inroad, having that access? He says, there's many things. And actually he will give a list, but not until chapter nine, which we'll get into in maybe a couple of years. Uh, so, but no, we'll get into it. It'll be a while. All right, but here's so, he says this though, here's the big benefit I wanna highlight right now. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is what he wants to focus on. So what are the oracles of God? Uh, I love um, putting together these slideshows because you just find images on Canva that are like, okay, I guess I'll use that. Here's a picture of some stone tablets, it, which is representing the Ten Commandments. Uh, but they have Roman numerals. I don't think Roman numerals existed when the Ten Commandments were made. I don't know. I'm not a history buff, but maybe someone could tell me the first numerals were Roman, even though the Romans didn't exist yet. Um, all right. Anyway, oracles of God, though, Ten Commandments. Uh, certainly in the, in the Old Testament, the Torah, it's called, the first five books of the Bible. The Jewish people had these. These were their books. And secondly, they had, this is a picture of the prophet Isaiah, they had the prophets. So not only do they have what God's word has been given to them, but they have people sent from God to remind them of God's word. That's who we call the prophets. And those prophets actually produce more of God's word. So the Jewish people have all of this privilege, all of this access to know God from his word, and yet they squander it. Again, he says this in, in verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, if you've read the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul is being very generous here with that word, some. What if some were unfaithful? How about almost everyone? There's very few people in the Old Testament that are like, I'm trusting that God's gonna do what he said. And actually the story of human history is very similar. A story of perpetual rejection of God. So what about this? Does their faithful, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. Here's what Paul says in verse four. By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So if you're new to the Bible, um, whenever we get to these like quotation mark things, we gotta go, where, where, where did that come from? Because there's a reason the author is using it to make their case. They're making their argument and saying this, there's a reason this is in here. And so this comes from Psalm 51, which we've talked about before in the, as we've studied the book of Romans, but it's when uh, David is found out for his sin and he turns and writes a, a psalm of repentance to God. And in it, he says these words. In the psalm, in Psalm 51, David agrees with God in his judgment. David says, You're, I've sinned. You're just, I am not. So does the faithlessness of people nullify the faithfulness of God? Absolutely not. God remains just. He remains faithful. And some of us need to hear this today. Human unfaithfulness 
does not negate the faithfulness, human, yeah, human unfaithfulness does not negate the faithfulness of God. I think it's easy to look around. Perhaps we see leaders, others who have let us down, others who have done wrong and immediately say, therefore God must be wrong. But this is actually not the case. King David is showing God actually comes out as more just when we see failure, when we see those tragedies and evil in humanity. So do we make God unfaithful by our actions? No, no more than coloring a picture and coloring the sky purple makes the sky, real sky purple, right? We can't change God's faithfulness. All right, let's look at this rest of this passage, five through eight. And here we get these, this turn where Paul's gonna, again, in verses five and seven, talk back to essentially his detractor. And so this is, this is what they'd be asking. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then in verse seven, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, if my being a sinner makes God look better, why am I being condemned? And we hear these contentions and we can almost hear the kind of, the childlike nature of, of attempting to self-justify. Contention number one, again, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Here's, what, here's what's being contended. God's wrong. God is unrighteous to inflict wrath. Contention number two, rephrased. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, if my doing wrong makes God look better, why am I being condemned as a sinner? I shouldn't be condemned as a sinner. In fact, I, should, I might as well do even more evil to make God look even better. We hear this, we can hear right in these arguments that, that the Apostle Paul has to deal with as he brings forward his gospel, we can hear the blame shifting and the denial. It made me think of these uh, progressive commercials. Has anybody seen these what, uh, what really happened replays? So this is the one, um, so the, this married couple is going kayaking and the wife goes, honey, did you remember to pack the life jackets? And he's like, uh, and you were the one that was supposed to pack the life jackets. She's like, I remember you saying you were gonna pack the life jackets. So the kind of replay guy shows up and the plays back for them, their actual interaction. And she takes up the headset and she goes, my favorite part was when you said, obviously I won't forget to pack the life jackets, right? This is what we sound like. We sound like the husband in this. We're saying, obviously, God can't judge us. God won't treat us this way. So this what really happened replay, is just illustrative of our turn. We're constantly trying to turn toward self-justification, even when he's clearly in the wrong. Look at his face of disappointment when he's found out. Um, and this is what, where our passage kind of turns to us. Because Israel and the story of Israel is more like a focus group or like a zoom in on all of humanity. And we see that even with all the inroads and all the access they have, they still reject God. In this case, it was that they had the oracles and they still miss out. And the reason they miss out is because they're trying to self-justify. It's the same reason we can miss out on the gospel and on the blessings of God. So Let's get into it. Self-justification, again, is the default setting of the human heart. We want to put forth our own right standing before others and God, and we become defensive when that is threatened. This is what the Apostle Paul has been kind of chipping away at through the first three chapters of Romans. He wants to tear down our walls of self-justification. 
I was trying to think of um, uh, a time when I was I couldn't uh, get around what was happening. I was thinking of a time where our oldest son was a baby, and he was a feisty baby. He was really fussy. And I was watching him one day. Allison was at work, and I just wanted to play a little bit of video games. I just wanted to play a little bit of video games before he needed my attention. And so I set him in his pack and play, uh, which is kind of just around the corner in the room, and he's in there, and immediately he starts crying. And he's wailing, and I'm like, just a little bit of video games. You just want a little time. And uh, just at that moment, Allison walks in the door, and she goes, uh, oh, what's wrong? And picks him up, and she comes around the corner, and there I am. Stand, I was standing and playing video games. I had nowhere to go. I literally said to her, this is exactly what it looks like. My, I was ignoring my crying child and playing video games. Uh, and I bring that up because here's the three ways self-justification shows up, and I could not do any of these. The three ways are blame, deny, defend. Here's how we try to declare that we're right in a situation. We blame, we, we point outward, uh, we deny, we just act like it doesn't exist, or we defend, we come to our own cause, right? In our passage, we saw it. God, it's God's fault, blame. God won't judge, deny. I, I'm making God look good, defend, right? So let's get into it. Let's see it in the storyline and in our hearts. So first blame, we've got, I love this, this is Adam. He's literally like in the blame pose. He's like, it's clearly, wasn't my fault. Uh, and that's, uh, so, in the, in the storyline, Genesis 1 and 2, things are in perfect harmony with Adam and Eve, our, our forebears, as you were. And they, I don't know if they were this pasty white, by the way. This is like very, uh, anyway, so, um, but they sin, right? They're exposed. And the first thing they do is cover themselves with fig leaves. And then Adam, when God shows up, goes right to blame. Let's look at it from Genesis 3. It says, here's what they did first. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So they take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they, they eat of it. And then God comes to them after they've covered themselves with fig leaves. He finds them hidden. And here's what the man says. The woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me the fruit and I ate. You see what Adam says there? This woman, you. It's staggering. He almost doesn't blame the woman as much as he says, God, this, my sin, is your fault. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. That's Blame, right? He sounds like a kid in the backseat of a car. He made me do it, right? Uh, but do we do this? Do we blame God for our sin, for our shortcomings? All right, another example, this time deny. Let's go to uh, our everybody's favorite, the Apostle Peter, uh, classic denier. But we don't think about this one that often. This is from John chapter 13 where uh, Peter is, everyone, John, Jesus does this remarkable thing. He he strips down his garments and he starts washing feet. And he gets to Peter and Peter's like, no way, you're not washing my feet. He refuses to let Jesus serve him, refuses to let Jesus cleanse him. And so here's what it says, verse six. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, 
What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Listen to Peter's language there in denial. You shall never. I don't need you. I will cleanse myself. Thank you very much. I will serve myself. Thank you very much. Peter has all this access. He's right there. And he still misses who Jesus is and denies this cleansing. Again, do we do this? Do we say, you know what, Jesus? I got this. I'll handle it. Thanks, but no thanks. Last one. Uh, we just kind of go through life like our own defense attorneys, right? And here, I guarantee you do it, right? I guarantee you defend, because here's how I know. Uh, well, one way we could tell. I'm, uh, here's, am I? Are you the hero of every story that you tell? Think about, a, you're telling a story and who comes out as the, as the hero? Think about maybe an interaction you had while driving. And you're like, yeah, I was the smarter, better driver. That person, they were a fool. But here's the, here's the ultimate for Midwesterners, how I know that you defend yourselves. When you buy something of value, what is the first thing you say to the person you told about it? But I got a heck of a deal. I got a heck of a deal. I, yes, I bought this expensive thing, but don't judge me. I got a heck of a deal, right? That's, we're always in defense mode. Or maybe we just do more, serve more, give more because we're trying to justify our own worth. Um, all right, we see that in the rich young ruler. Again, Jesus now with the blame pose a little bit. I don't know what Jesus is pointing to here, but the rich young ruler, classic story in the Bible where he comes and he, he's gonna defend himself to Jesus. We see it in Mark chapter 10. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Now again, to answer his question, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He takes the quote unquote right approach. He runs up to Jesus, humility, good teacher, and he said to him, this is what the rich young ruler says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Commentaries were divided on this, but one commentary said, he says it almost like a boast to be celebrated. Hey, Jesus, I have kept these. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus says, come follow me. Not all the good things you've done from your youth. Come follow me. And what is his response? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Uh, one commentary from David Garland says this of the passage. With an eye for poignant detail, Mark tells us that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Jesus does not sneer at his claims to have obeyed the law. He believes what he says about his obedience. But because he loves him, he directly challenges him. He does not try to spare his feelings or avoid offending him, but candidly speaks the truth. The man regards himself as respectably good, but being respectably good is not good enough. He lacks one thing. This statement implies that knowing the commandment and faithful commandments and faithfully keeping them does not secure eternal life. Jesus does not tell the man specifically what the one thing is, but gives him four directives. Go, sell everything, Give to the poor, then come follow me. These, commandments, these commands stress that if one wants eternal life, everything depends 
on one's response to Jesus. The rich young ruler's response was, hey, I'm going to defend myself. See my good works? Don't you see what I've done? He misses Jesus. He misses the rescue. He misses out on Jesus' righteousness. So if that's what is our response to Jesus? Let's go back to, to verse three again. Entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That some is also a hopeful word because there's still time to believe. There's still time to believe in the faithful one. What if it, it wasn't enough for them or us to try to be faithful? But here's the reality. We don't nullify the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. Instead of oracles, he's going to do something greater. He's going to send his actual son, who is the word incarnate, into the world to show his faithfulness and to rescue self-justifiers like us. In John 1, it says this, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is Jesus. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. The Bible storyline has a remarkable twist in that the faithfulness of God takes on flesh. He's faithful to his promises so much so that his son comes into the world. So where the rich young ruler defended his own good works, where Peter denied and missed out, where Adam blamed and fled God's mercy, we have this alternate opportunity. Look what it says again in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. And now here's why Jesus overturned self-justification. We're trusting in another and not in our own goodness. In fact, Simon Peter has this great reversal, right? Right away in verse 9 in chapter 13, he says, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. He says, cleanse me. He goes from, I'll do this to cleanse me. The apostle Paul. It's kind of a remarkable story. In Acts chapter seven, he's there as, as a disciple of Jesus is being murdered. In Acts chapter nine, Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. He has this encounter with Christ. Later telling us of his experience in Philippians three, he actually says, I, under the law, I was blameless. That's how just he thought he was. But then in 1 Corinthians 4, we get this remarkable thing the Apostle Paul says. He says, I don't, I don't know of a charge against me. I, don't even, I can't even think of a charge against me right now. But that doesn't mean I'm justified. He's willing to investigate, Am I, I could be in the wrong. I don't know it all. I don't have it all figured out. God is the one who judges. Again, his self-justification has been overturned to the point that he's actually investigating areas he might be in the wrong. And lastly, Mary and Martha, we've got to get to this one. But Martha, Mary, right, sits at Jesus' feet in a classic Bible story. And Martha is, is running around. She's serving. It says it this way. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So she's going out. She's welcoming Jesus into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. 
But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This describes Martha, but it describes our self-justifying hearts as well. Look at these words. Distracted, anxious, troubled, never knowing if what I've done is enough, never knowing if I'm enough. So she's running around serving and she's missing it. But this isn't, but Martha is an awesome case study in the Bible. This is not the end of her story. Uh, but we got to see this from Rebecca McLaughlin. She comments on this in an article for TGC. She says, we first meet Martha and Mary in Luke. When Jesus is at their house, Martha is busy serving. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, learning with the disciples. Martha complains and asks Jesus to tell Mary she should be serving too. But Jesus responds, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. In a culture in which women were expected to serve, not to learn, Jesus affirms Mary's learning from him. But far from dismissing Martha, Jesus, John tells another story in which Jesus has a stunning conversation with her after her brother Lazarus has died. So it's talking about John chapter 11, and then we'll even look at to 12. In the context, right, Lazarus has died, Martha and Mary's brother, and Jesus was not there. And he comes back, and he has this conversation Quoted here, in fact, and now here's what Rebecca McLaughlin says this is fascinating. She says, in fact, it seems that Jesus let Lazarus die, partly so that he could have this conversation with Martha, whom he loved, in which he uttered world-changing words. This is the conversation they have. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who uh, lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says, Martha did. These world-changing words. Martha responds. She, she goes through this pain. Lazarus, Lazarus is raised. She got to see Jesus up close. When he says this to her, she says, I believe. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She sees Jesus as he is, as the resurrection and the life. And she stops running around trying to justify herself. She starts trusting and starts worshiping. Actually, in John chapter 12, it's going to say that she, start, she was serving again, but in a totally different way. In John 12, she's serving out of an overflow of joy that she knows Jesus, not in order to make herself righteous. That's a huge difference, a world of difference. Or for me as a big brother, serving because I love and responding to God's love for me, serving because I love the little and not just so that I'm making myself feel better about who I am. It's a world of difference because Jesus offers real rest, real righteousness. We don't have to be like this Cubs pitcher who had a perfect game. Anybody see this? He has a perfect game going and then him and his catcher collide on a, the weakest, easiest ground ball, the field. But this is us when we're running around trying to self-justify. All it takes is one mistake. And we've lost it. It only works for so long. So for those of us in the room who are tired of blaming others, denying the truth, defending ourselves constantly, Jesus offers rest. He overturns our self-justification. Blame, blaming becomes ownership. I actually am, I'm so secure in the gospel that I can actually admit when I'm wrong and ask people for forgiveness and say I'm sorry. Sorry. 
I can, I can, I'm so secure in the gospel. I don't need to deny. I can actually be honest and ask for help. I'm so secure in the gospel. I don't need to defend my own righteousness. I can actually be humble. I can respond even to criticism with grace. This is the uniqueness of Christianity. Here's, here's why. Every other worldview says establish your righteousness. Whether religious and do obey these religious rules to establish your righteousness or irreligious. Live this certain way and you'll be a good person. Only Christianity says, don't establish your righteousness, lay it down. Receive the righteousness of Christ. And that is a freedom where you then get to be a different person. You don't, get to, you don't have to continue living like you're guilty. Because we have the only, free, the only approval that matters, which is God's. And here's why, ultimately. Because on the cross... Jesus overturns our self-justification. On the cross, he takes our blame as the blameless one. On the cross, Jesus overcomes our denial with his faithfulness. And then because of the cross, he now defends us with his righteousness. We are covered, we're clothed in him. We are established. And this is, how do I know? Because he rose because he is the resurrection of life. His resurrection from the grave cemented that he was righteous because that was what the result of keeping the law. So now when we put our faith in him, that righteousness is ours. And he actually comes to our defense when we feel guilty or accused. So we can take a deep breath. We can relax our shoulders. We can unclench our jaw. We can take the tongue off the roof of our mouth because we're free in Christ. I'm okay in Jesus. Only the gospel offers us. Everything else says, establish your righteousness. Only the gospel says, here is the righteousness of another who's come to rescue you. Receive, believe. So as we close, have you encountered Jesus as he is? Have you seen him as a rescuer instead of someone to impress? Today's the day to not miss out. We get to respond to God's faithfulness with faith. And if you have, if you have said yes to Jesus, be refreshed in that. You're okay. You've got nothing to prove. Enjoy his righteousness. Stop running and rest. He is the resurrection and life. We have that chance again to, to believe that news today. We're going to move now to a time of communion. Here at Hope, we practice what we call open communion. Uh, you don't have to be a member of this church or any church. All we would ask is that you have said, yes, I am a follower of Christ. I believe. It could, today could be your first time. Or said, yeah, put my, I want this. I want this righteousness. I want this forgiveness. I want this freedom. It is available to you in Jesus today. The, and actually the communion reminds us of that. It's, there's no uh, special powers in this. It just reminds us. It's the symbol to remind us of two things. Christ's body broken for us on the cross and his blood shed for us. It reminds us that our rescuer has delivered. He has been faithful and he has rose. So we're gonna move to a time of communion. The band's gonna come up, play a couple songs. Feel free to grab communion, worship through song. Um, I'm gonna pray and uh, we'll continue on in worship. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the reality that you are the faithful one, that you've been faithful to give your word and give promises and you've been faithful to deliver on those promises most clearly seen 
and your son rescuing us by dying for us. God, that this is not something we produced or earned. It is grace given to us. So we get to stop running. We get to stop blaming, denying, defending, and can just believe and receive. So God, I pray right now as we close in song and communion, you would wash over us with that reality that our hearts would be changed and that we would rejoice in your salvation afresh. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.